church. If you're interested, Alyssa is right there. You may join her in the back, and then she will take you downstairs um, to that time. Also, I want to mention um, in the back we have these uh, these blue Bibles, just paperback Bibles. They're ESV uh, Bible translation. This is what we use during the service. I know most of us have some kind of app or gadget we can we can. Uh, uh, pay attention to the, to the text with, and we try to put it up here. But if you don't have one of these and you would like an ESV, they're back there. Take it home. Take it with you. It's yours. Keep it. We want to make sure everybody has a copy of God's Word. So if you would like one of these, they're in the back. Feel free to, uh, to take hold of that. Um, some of you are wondering how fast this sermon is going to be, since there is a particular game on, I think. A few of you. Uh, some of you could care less. Some of you, uh, if you're hardcore, you're probably not here listening to me. Maybe you're at home catching the first part of worship, and then when I start preaching, you turn on kickoff. Uh, some of you are like, can we, can we do both? You know, is it okay to do both? So uh, we'll, we'll seek to do uh, our best here and get done not too long. Um, get to uh, watch the game, whether together or uh, at your own home. Um, I'm not going to read the text today like I normally do. Actually, um, so who's doing the clicker? Are you, you can skip that. I have some slides added. There we go. Uh, that will go through the text verse by verse kind of as we move along. Um, we're continuing Ecclesiastes chapter 8, uh, seeking the way of wisdom. Um, Ecclesiastes together, it's been a bit of like a cultural trauma, you know. It's kind of like, for those that have been here consistently, you know, like each week, you're like, oh gosh, here it comes. You know, can I, can I handle any more of this challenging, difficult text? Um, most, most books and in, in passages say something from Romans or maybe something from the gospel. Pretty quick, you get into the problem, the sin problem, the suffering problem, the struggle. But in the same few verses, you get to the solution, what God has done in Christ or in the Old Testament, what we foreshadow, see to be done in Christ, how God has met the need, met the problem. And then there's normally some way we can get to application. Uh, problem, what God does, and then how can we apply it, right? Um, you normally do that within a few verses. Uh, Ecclesiastes is uh, 12 chapters of the problem, right? It's like, Problem, suffering, challenge upon challenge upon challenge. And so it can kind of beat you down. It can kind of be uh, depressing. It can kind of be a struggle. Um, and so that's why each week we've, we find little clues and hints of some hope. But we've stepped outside of Ecclesiastes to get to what God's going to do about the problem and how there's hope and how there's uh, grace and how we can apply it. Um, but the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to really know the struggle. He wants us not just to know it here, he wants us to feel it as we go. You know, in history there was that war called the Hundred Years War, you know, Hundred Years of Conflict. And then we've known there's short skirmishes, you know, little battles that take place in other times of history. This is like the Hundred Years War, you know. It is like constant, consistent struggle, battle uh, with some hope at the end. But what's really cool is I've thought about this is how God's Word works upon us at multiple levels. God's Word works upon us in the text we'll look at today, just like it did last week when Ryan preached and the week before. So specific passages and verses teach us things, but it also works on us cumulatively. Uh, For those that have been here consistently, maybe you have felt the weight of the difficulty. And so there's something about knowing that we're coming back to it week in and week out, right? We know the struggle. There's a compounding impact of God's Word. And that's why we move through books of the Bible and not just pick out topics. 
Because as we move from verse to verse and passage to passage within the book, we're forced to deal with the weight and the force of the text like a snowball, right, growing downhill bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're having to deal with it. In Ecclesiastes, that snowball gets bigger and bigger and bigger, so we will feel the weight of suffering and sorrow in a very deep and meaningful way. And so as we start, we have to ask ourselves, um, do, do you feel yourself resisting right, the difficult passages? Do you come and say, oh, I'm not Ecclesiastes again. Like, I can't take any more of that. Where's the happy stuff? You know? like, give, me the, give me the good stuff. I talked to someone not too long ago, and she said, uh, I love going to church because I love that good, warm, happy feeling is what she told me. I said, well, you're welcome to come at 5 o'clock. I'm not sure you're going to end up with that feeling, but please come. Are you tired of it? Or maybe you're the more uh, somber, serious type, and you're, you're thrilled with Ecclesiastes because you tend to, to live in the, the melancholy, kind of the Eeyore mentality, right? And this is, this is your book. There's no life. There's no joy. It's all vanity. I told you, life's just difficult. Deal with it, you know. Um, wherever we are, maybe, and maybe more options than just those two, um, one thing the book does in its cumulative effect is it forces us to be self-aware, right? The preacher wants us to know our own hearts. What do you do with suffering? What do you do with trials? What's your, uh, yeah, suffering in the moment, maybe there's some adrenaline, maybe like for the ER doctor, you know, that can come in and, and deal with something quick and blood's pumping and we can deal with it. Um, but what about the, the chronic cancer, you know, 10 years, the struggle, and the battle, and the difficulty. Uh, Ecclesiastes forces us to deal with our hearts. What does our heart do with suffering? What does our heart do with trials? What does our heart do with struggles over the long haul? Um, it teaches us about our impatience. It teaches us we want the quick answer. Uh, it teaches us about our comforts. Uh, we have a, to- a, a low tolerance as Americans for discomfort, and we're okay for a little bit, and then we're kind of over it, we want to move on. Notice what your heart does. Ecclesiastes is working on multiple levels, as God's Word does to our hearts. Introduction. All right, what about our passage today? Ecclesiastes 8, 10 through 17. Um, we're going to encounter a series of mixed messages. Uh, not too un- unfamiliar or too unlike what we've looked at before. They're statements that are true, and yet on the surface they seem contradictory. We call those paradoxes. They're both true, and yet they seem to combat. We can't put them together necessarily in our mind. But he says several things kind of in proverb, and they go together, and they seem hard to take together. So we're going to kind of look at the mixed messages and hopefully come away something at the end with some application and some reflection upon the goodness of God as we do this. Again, our goal is wisdom and life with God. The first message I want you to see uh, is this. People who don't love God are praised. I think that's up there. Boom, look at that. They're praised. They're praised in their death. Verse 10, the preacher says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. Such things mean wicked things. This also is vanity. It's frustrating because the foolish ones... Uh, in the end of their life, they're buried, and they come, and there's a huge uh, funeral, and they pray, they're praised, and they're lauded, and uh, they've come in and out of the city. It speaks of their reputation. People know them. Uh, they're, they're godless, they're wicked, and yet they're praised at their death. 
He's lamenting. How is this possible? They were even churchgoers, it says, in and out of the holy places. They went to, the, they went to church. They were churchgoers. They came in and came out. They were praised. They were commended. And yet they were doing wicked and vile things. The question is, how can that be commended for these things? They were never caught, one author says. Their folly received honor. Their crimes remain unsolved. And their victims remain mocked. And so the preacher is lamenting that uh, the wicked, even at their funeral, even at their death, they're getting praised undeservingly. One poet in jest said this, The rain falls upon the just and also on the unjust fellows. But mostly it falls upon the just because the unjust have the just umbrellas. It's a good little rhyme there. You see that? I didn't, I didn't write that. I know. It's high quality. I didn't write that. Um, the unjust seem to, to get everything. They just seem to win. It's not fair. They're praised even in their death. They're also praised, uh, the next verse, they're also praised in life. Look at these few verses. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully, is fully set to do evil. They're not caught. They're not prosecuted. Maybe they are down the road. So they just live it up and continue to do evil. And they're not caught. There's no punishment. There's no consequences. Uh, 12, though a sinner does an evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. We'll look at the rest of that verse in a second. Verse 14, there's a vanity that takes place on earth, but there are righteous people who, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. It seems that the life of the wicked... And the life of the righteous gets switched, right? The wicked prosper, he's saying, and the righteous are suffering. How can this be? It doesn't seem right that the godless would receive the blessing and those that are godly would seem seemingly be cursed. Some of you may have heard this. Uh, Kathy Griffin, uh, the comedian, um, uh, actress, uh, irreverent. She won an Emmy in 2007 and she... She came to, to give her speech, and she said this. She said, a lot of people come up here and thank Jesus for this award. I want you to know that no one had less to do with this award than Jesus. And she held up her, her trophy and said, blank you, Jesus. This award is my God now. So she said, wow. Can you imagine? We were like, is lightning going to strike? Right? But she's winning an Emmy. She's on stage. She's standing ovation. She's lauded and praised in life and yet godless. No fear of the Lord, right? That's what he's saying. I'm looking around. These people, they're succeeding. Maybe you know somebody. A friend in high school, you know, uh, still today is an, is an atheist, uh, doesn't love God, doesn't care, uh, is not kind, uh, is boastful, and yet is prospered financially in, in reputation in tremendous ways, lives in a a major city today in our country and is well known and you'll, you'll see his billboard and he's, he's famous. And yet he's godless by means of the scripture, right? Why would they have success? How, how is that so? That's the, that's the question. It, it appears that the, the consequences have been switched. And he's lamenting it from our perspective. It seems wrong. It seems misguided. But, this, these verses are mixed messages. 
Even though this is true that the wicked seem to prosper and praised those that don't love God in life and in death, even so, those who love God pursue wisdom. That's the second thing. They love God, pursue wisdom. There's going to be three little points under this. Despite what we see in the wicked prospering, those who love God still commit to pursuing wisdom. I'm going to show you this in a few verses. One of them is from uh, a verse Ryan led last week. I'm going to I'm going to pick that one out. Verse 5 says this. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. I wrote it in this sentence and it's long. That's why I put it up on the board. The wise will set their sights on a life of doing what is right and discerning the right way and the right time. So those who love God despite the success of the wicked will seek no evil thing. Those who love God will pursue wisdom. They will seek truth. They will seek justice. They will seek mercy. They will seek integrity. They will seek character. Despite what they see, they will pursue this path. A few weeks ago, we said wisdom was what? It's doing the right thing, the right time, and the right way, right? That's what that verse says in verse 5. They're discerning the right way at the right time, and they're doing the right thing. Despite what we see, those who love God will pursue wisdom in this regard. They will learn to discern. Another thing we see the wise will do, the wise will put their hope in God, knowing that this life is judged for the next life. Uh, The wise know, despite what we see, we know there are consequences. Though the wicked seem to prosper and get away with it, even at death, we know, the wicked know, I mean, the righteous know that there are consequences. That there are consequences. Listen to verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. This is self-talk. I see what's going on, but I know it will go well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not go well with the wicked Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. See that three times, fear. The preacher's caught an attention here. Do you see it? Verse 12, he says his life is going to be prolonged, the wicked. And then verse 13, he says his life is not going to be prolonged, right? What's going on? He, he's struggling. He's, 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 he's uh, verbally processing. He's talking out loud, and he's dealing with, I see their life is prolonged. We're applauding godless on the stage, and yet I know, I know God honors the righteous. I know there's judgment, there's consequences for the wicked. It looks like they prolong, but they will not be prolonged, is what he says. He wrestles with this. We know this to be true. It will not go well with the wicked. It sure looks that way, though, doesn't it? Implicit in, in this passage is uh, a question we should be asking ourselves. If we're caught in that tension, if we can see the tension he's naming, it looks like righteous win. You know, um, why does Tom Brady get 10 Super Bowls and some of the greatest quarterbacks of all time never get to go to the Super Bowl, right? It's like, it's not fair. It seems like these people are winning and these people, no, it seems that way. Are we going to trust God? And follow the way of righteousness, even if we can't see it. Even if, that's 
that's implied in the proverb. But we trust the way of righteousness and fear God whether we see it or not because there is judgment in the end. There is something in the next life. The wise know that there will be an evaluation. Katie read it, uh, the story of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds. Just summarizing the story from Jesus' words. Uh, the good farmer, he sows the seed. It's good seed, but in the middle of the night, the, the enemy comes and sows the bad seed. And the servants say, uh, let's go, uh, we, we heard this happen, uh, farmer, let's go pick the, the weeds out. And the good, king says, uh, the good farmer says, no, um, it, it's hard to distinguish at this point. We can't tell between the good and the bad. And, and commentators say that the, 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 the weeds uh, mimic the wheat early on. It looks the same, but inside the weeds there's a, a poisonous center that will make it corrupt and destroyed. And so the farmer says, let's just wait. Let's let it grow and at the end, the time of harvest or the time of judgment, we will pick out the weeds. They will be bundled and they will be burned and destroyed. And the wheat will be gathered and brought with us, gathered into the barn. So it is in life. The, the wicked may prosper. The righteous may suffer. And we grow side by side in this work, maybe in the next cubicle, in the next desk at class. Maybe your, your boss or your employee or whomever it may be, and they're there side by side. But in the end, God will distinguish between his people and between the wicked. There will be a judgment. There will be a judgment in the end. And the righteous, the ones who fear the Lord, will be saved, and the wicked will be cast out. Um, just a little uh, aside, culturally, one of the ways that the church has been impacted by the culture is that um, it, this has always been hard for it's hard for Ecclesiastes for Solomon. It's always been hard for the the righteous, the godly, to see the wicked prosper. Right? That's always true. You see other people prosper, and you compare. They're doing bad. And they're getting good things. What's going on? How do I understand this? But it's particularly hard in our culture in our moment because we've lost something in our Western world of the transcendent. Right? When you've lost the idea of most generations have believed in something supernatural, that there's a God, there's a heaven and hell, there's, there's Satan, there's good, there's evil, there's angels. They've believed in that, and that served as some capacity to curb our actions. There's a sense of judgment. But when you lose transcendence, when you lose God, all you see is here, right? When all we see is here, and we see people prospering, we tend to make decisions in the here, right? In the now, because that's all we see right before us. It's all we see, what we can measure. We see empirical data. They seem to be doing just fine. They seem to not be doing just fine. I'll go this route. But when you have a view of the transcendent, when you understand there's God and there is a judgment, then you don't make decisions by what is seen. You make decisions by based on what God says, what is seen. That God will judge the hearts. Um, it's more than just... Uh, what we can touch. There are spiritual realities outside of what we see. And that's one way the church has been impacted. The world has lost that sense of transcendence. And it creeps into us. And though we're rational people, we know there's a supernatural world we live in. We live quorum Deo. Before the face of God. And we must know that. And this passage, this, this wheat and tares... 
as well as this proverb we just read from Ecclesiastes, is meant for us to have a holy, healthy sense of fear of God. Um, we talk a lot about the love of God and the grace of God, and we should. And in Scripture, the love and grace of God is the primary motivation for our obedience. Christ's love compels us, 2 Corinthians. But fear of God, fear of his wrath and judgment, is a healthy motivator, right? It's also, it's not primary. Primary is the love of God. But I want my two-year-old to know the stove's hot, and I want him to be afraid of it so he doesn't touch it and get hurt, right? God warns us with judgment. He warns us repeatedly. The way of the wicked looks prosperous, but in the end it will be gathered and will be burned. That should catch our hearts. We should be afraid of that. He is a holy God. We should know that. We should fear the Lord in reverence and honor of who he is. Two things. One more thing the wise do. Wise people, uh, we do that which is good despite what is seen, and we also trust that God will judge. Finally, the wise find pleasure in the good gifts of God that do not, quite, uh, that do not quit but persist even amid the hardships. Even amid the hardships. Did you, did you hear that? That's a mouthful. Um, the, the wise can find pleasure even in the middle of difficult things. The verse uh, tells us that in verse 15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Remember, under the sun is, is being used as, as difficulty. Under the sun is trial. So God's given good things in the middle of difficulty and trial. The wise man can enjoy good things even in hard things. The wise man is not all or nothing. Right? The wise man can, can labor hard at work and enjoy the beautiful weather. The wise man can uh, enjoy a good meal even in the midst of sorrow and difficulties. The wise man can appreciate friendships even though he's stressed and overwhelmed with difficulties at work. Because he knows God gives good gifts in the midst of trials. Now I will say, you got to be careful. It's, it is true. Um, and I've experienced this on a little level. Some of you experienced on an enormous level. So I, I, I share this, I hold this loosely. Um, but um, there is a sense when you suffer something tremendous. And you go through something so difficult. There is a, there is a season where nothing tastes, right? There is a season where um, funny jokes aren't funny, you know, and, and sleep evades and you can't sleep. And, you know, uh, the, the best meal tastes bland um, because sorrow is so heavy. That, that, that is true. Um, so I don't want to minimize suffering because there's a, there's a season of suffering that's so immense that the lifeblood is gone. Some of you know that season. Um, um, it, it's also true that God brings healing. And the people that thought they'd never smile or laugh do laugh and smile again. Um, and he brings life again. And maybe it's time. Um, it's certainly his work and his spirit. I remember when my dad died when I was 21. Uh, uh, sudden, unexpected. I've shared some of that before uh, I, I thought, you know, I was so devastated. Still painful to talk about. I remember the first time I, I, like, I, I laughed or smiled. 
after he died, I felt kind of guilty, you know? I said, how can I be enjoying when I'm in this so much sorrow? And yet, one, I know my dad would want me to have joy, right? But two, I began to realize, and there were people around me to help me realize, is that even though my dad was gone, the goodness of God had not left. Right? That's what he's saying. The wise, it may take some time, but they come to realize that good gifts of God don't leave us, even though a person may leave us, even though a trial may persist, even though something may be overwhelming. And we can find ability to enjoy good things in hard, hard seasons. That's a gift of God. And that's a place of wisdom. We can, in fact, the wise do, find pleasure in the goodness of God while challenges and sorrows persist. Um, just a summary for where we are so far. Um, the reality of life is mixed. It's a mixed bag. The evil seem to win. Uh, they prosper. They're praised, right, in life and death. But the wise have said, no, we're going to maintain our, our godliness and pursue wisdom and what God wants despite what we see. We're trusting that God will judge. And as we're in this path, though it's hard, though it's a long journey, we can appreciate the good gifts that God gives. Right? You can smile in the midst of sorrow and suffering. But why are these things the way they are? How can they be mixed, good and evil, like this? Verse 17 um, says this. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So how can the mixed messages of the wicked prospering, the evil things of the world, uh, yet pursuing wisdom, pursuing godliness, how do those things hold together? And the answer of the preacher, the wisest man ever says, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, yeah, there's theological categories. Yes, there's answers. Uh, yes, uh, we know God uses suffering and his purpose suffering for good. But we don't always know the purposes, right? We can't make a direct correlation, cause and effect. This happened, so this happened, right? We don't know that. We don't know. We're limited. Suffering and sorrow and what we see forces us to say, we don't know. It reveals the limitations of our own wisdom, of our own understanding, of grasping God's ways. We have to say his ways are not our ways or our ways are not his ways. We have to admit that. Honestly, I find this, uh, maybe some of you are like me, I find this pretty, this honesty helpful. There, there's a one sense where we want like an airtight uh, theology where we have an answer to every single thing, right? And you, you go to seminary, you think you're going to come away with that, and you leave with more questions and answers, and you think you're going to have everything in its place. And we do have scripture, and we do have good theology, and we have things like confessions and creeds that help us and guide us. Um, but we live in the reality of a broken world, and we're not going to solve all the mysteries here. And something about not being able to solve it is actually comforting. Because I'm the type of person that wants to know every little thing. If I go to a meeting, I want to know the agenda. I want to have the plan. And if I read the text, I want to understand every Greek word. I want to have all put together so I can have it just right, just perfect. Maybe some of you have a little bit of an OCD, perfectionism type A thing I got going on. And you can identify with that. But then you realize, what, 
We're dealing with the holy God. Is there any margin or space in my theology for God to be God? The wisest man who's taught us lots of wise things, all these things were to do and to pursue and to seek. He said, we don't know everything. We don't know it all. And for us that want to know it all, it taps into our desire to control and to be uh, have things in our own hands, to be God ourselves. Which to seek to be God is the most foolish thing to do in the first place, right? Solomon confronts us again. If God is God, then he must be God, and we must fear him and surrender. It's difficult um, to do, but it's true. So let's wrap it up. Let's talk about applications. Two, two things to take away. Two things to take away. What do we do with all this information? Mixed messages and no answers. What do we do? Two things I want you to see. One, uh, just like the wicked may prosper, uh, don't be surprised that sorrows are a part of a good person's life. Here I'm a good person. I'm calling, that's, that's the believer. That's the person that's in Christ. Don't be surprised that sorrows are a part of a good person's life. And second, don't be surprised that joy and sorrow remain. Don't be caught off guard with the first, and yet, don't be caught off guard. There's still good things in the midst of suffering. Um, some of us know sorrow and, injust- and injustice, um, but have lost the pleasure of this life and hope for the next. Um, some of us bear the marks of sorrow that's um, so deep, it-, it feels like there's just no life, you know? Um, and it feels like life will never come back. And hope is gone. Despair. Pain has won. Um, and a former neighbor was, was prominent, uh, was extremely wealthy, and got involved in a, uh, a big, big financial investment and basically lost it all. Lost it all. And um, went from being uh, the top to, uh, you know, well, they live next to me, or did. Um, so in the middle, maybe. And uh, no years and years have passed. They still sit there with no life. They look, no effect, right? Dead inside. There's sorrow, but there's no pleasure. Um, the good news of the gospel, that, that the sorrow and suffering, still there's opportunity for life now and life to come. Romans 8.18 says this, Paul says, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to reveal to us. We're going to do a comparison of greater than, less than, suffering now in the weight of glory, and I go to compare it, and it's not even comparable, he says. I've got to throw out the suffering, suffering that is so gut-wrenching. You know that suffering that's so difficult and painful that you want to just throw up? And yet when I try to put them to compare, the comparison of glory is so much better that there's no scale. Paul also calls our suffering light and momentary. He doesn't feel light and momentary. But in comparison to the weight of glory, it is light and momentary. 
And so the, the good news of the gospel is that even though sorrow and joy are, are sorrow and pain are there, so is joy. We have the freedom to enjoy the good gifts of God in a broken world. But others are all about the good gifts of God and hope, but we aren't honest about sorrow. <laughs> Some of us are, are, are lifeless and dead. There's no hope. Always, this is my lot, vanity of vanities. But some of us over here are all about goodness and joys and gift, and we just close our eyes to sorrow. We haven't been honest enough to name disappointment and brokenness. Maybe we're too churchy. Maybe we've learned too many cliches. Maybe we've heard too many one-liners, or we've got too many Christian t-shirts. And we just think we've got to fake it the whole time. Pretend and smile. We have to act like it's okay when it's really not okay. The, the preacher here with the mixed messages confronts us both. It's a mixed bag. The freedom of the gospel is we can name sorrow and embrace the difficulty because God has us. Because he will catch us. We sing that song, He will hold us fast. So there's hope in the middle of sorrow. We don't have to pie in the sky, right? We can be honest. We can name the disappointments. I thought it would be different. I thought I'd be married by now. I thought it wouldn't turn out like this. I thought the cancer was going away. We don't have to fake it. We can name it and God will hold us. He will keep us. The gospel, he is with us. We don't pretend. Jesus stares straight into the eyes of sin and suffering and sorrow. And he goes to the cross to destroy sin and suffering and sorrow and shame. You know why? So it won't destroy you. So you can walk in the valley of the shadow of death and come out the other side. He died in the valley of the shadow. You will not. He keeps us. He holds us. It won't destroy us. Heartache will not have the final word. We have joy. You see, the unwise cannot hold those things. Depressed, despair, Pretend, smile, be happy. Because Jesus, because the gospel's true, we can name sorrow honestly. And we can have joy. We can have joy now and forevermore. He came to die as a fool, to be mocked on the cross, that we might be wise in him. That's the truth. May we fear God. May we cling to him. Let's pray.